You know, I was thinking this last week that there are basically three realities that everyone should be told when they first start college. The first one is this. If you ever schedule a class at 8 a.m., there's a pretty good chance you're never going to have perfect attendance. The second one is, no matter what you think you're going to major in, it's probably not what you're going to graduate with. <laughs> I mean, I changed my major five times. I knew people who changed it as many as 15. And the third thing is this. At least once, whether it's because of a bet or a dare or to show off to some friends who are doing it, you're going to do something that you'll likely remember for the rest of your life. It's this third one, actually, that I still think about all the time. In fact, I think about it probably two to three times a day. And it happened right before Lent, my first year in college. See, I had a lot of friends who were giving up things, and they encouraged me to do this. And so I decided that for Lent, I would give up red meat. And that lasted for one meal. <laughs> and then I quit. <laughs> I mean, I quit eating meat altogether because I thought just not eating red meat was too easy. And 25 years later, I think it's going to stick. <laughs> you know, the reality is that many of us have these kinds of rules that either we make up or that we choose to live into that we make with our food, with our relationships, with our belief systems, etc. Some of these are short-term and are just kind of our choice. Like, we decide that for the family holiday pictures or for swimsuit, we want to look a certain way. Or we decide that we want to try out for the wrestling team, so we want to put on some extra weight. Or maybe you decide that you're allergic to beets, because aunt so-and-so is bringing around her famous beet popcorn and you don't want to disappoint her by telling her that you don't think it's good. Sometimes it's more serious though, isn't it, right? Sometimes we make decisions because we know that we have a family history of addiction and so we choose not to drink alcohol. Or the doctor tells us the terrible news that we have celiacs and we're going to be spending the rest of our life not eating gluten. Regardless, we have all of these different rules, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. But before we go any further, I did want to kind of let you know, uh, about a month ago when Pastor Philip asked me if I would be willing to speak today, because he's up in Seattle right now, there's actually a picture of them all eating from last night. So, uh, Philip, if you're watching, hi. <laughs> but uh, he asked me, because Devin is having his ordination ceremony today up in Seattle, and Philip is presenting there, and so he asked me if I would be willing to present about the food rules and about my food story as we're getting ready to start a new series called Let's Eat. Now, before we go too deep into this, I do want to offer two quick disclaimers about this. Uh, the first of which is that my food story is mostly about me being a vegetarian, okay? But I don't care if you're a vegetarian or not. So just like go ahead and wipe your brow. I don't care if you're a vegan, if you're a vegetarian, if you're a pescatarian, if you're keto, if you eat whatever is served to you. Or honestly, I don't care if you just like grab a fork and knife and charge into the field and eat whatever you can find. It's perfectly fine. The second disclaimer that I want to make though is this. I'm also not a nutritionist. 
I'm not a doctor. And so the information that I'm giving you is really more my story about how I came to see one of the most mundane things, that process of eating, as my way to connect to the divine. And I hope that by kind of walking through this story a little bit, you'll see not only how food played a large part in my faith journey, but also how it played a large part of the faith journey that we see recorded in the Bible. So with that said, I do want to tell you that when I first started telling people that I was a vegetarian, <laughs> there were all kinds of questions. Uh, the first series of questions were mostly theological, actually. My dad is a Southern Baptist pastor, and when I first told him that I was a vegetarian, he put his arm around me and said, Chris, I just don't know what we're going to tell the people at church. <laughs> you know that potlucks are an important part of our theology, right? <laughs> The second questions had more to do with science and health. My mom is a nurse, and so when I told her that I was a vegetarian, she said, so how are you going to get enough protein? Which, by the way, happens to be the question that I get asked most often. It's odd to me, though, that when I tell people I'm a vegetarian, suddenly they become super concerned about my macro and micronutrients. I'll be honest, that's never happened in reverse. I've never been making a sandwich for someone, and they were like, I don't like mayonnaise on it. I've been like, do you get enough potassium? How are you doing on magnesium? doesn't quite work that way. And then the third person was right after I decided to be a vegetarian, I went to Burger King, and this was back before they had like the Impossible Whopper or anything like that, and I ordered a cheeseburger with no meat. <laughs> I guess it's better than ordering nuggets with no meat, but anyway, the, the lady who was behind the cash register looked at me, and I was about the same size that I am now, and she looked at me and said, young man, how do you expect to grow if you don't eat no meat. <laughs> I guess I figured I had grown enough. As a side note, my wife Morgan just recently became a vegetarian at the beginning of this year. The first 12 years of our marriage, we weren't, she wasn't. We would have different meals. She would cook meat for herself and not for me, and we'd go out to eat and never share uh, what we had ordered because hers had meat in it. But that actually changed earlier this year. She was in a small group here at the venues reading The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. She came home one day and was like, I think I'm going to be a vegetarian now. Which honestly might be the most venues thing that anyone has ever done, right? Like if a pastor can't convince you of something, just let Richard Rohr do it, and we'll take care of it that way, I guess. You know, but my guess is that we've all had changes in our life. We've all made decisions or we've all started living into a new part of ourselves where we've had something outside the norm and suddenly we have everyone else inserting their opinions and their questions into the way that we are living. You know, sometimes it's relatively fun and enjoyable things like moving across the country to start college or leaving your steady career for your dream job. Sometimes it's more serious things like letting your family know that you're no longer using the name or pronouns that you were assigned at birth. And sometimes it's more fun things, right? Like deciding that you're going to get a tattoo or cut your hair short or grow it long. And oftentimes people suddenly insert their opinions because the norms in the life that you're living into are not the ones that they were expecting. You know, sometimes these questions are good and honest, and sometimes they're just masked ways for them to insert themselves into what you are doing in your life. 
So today, we're going to be spending most of our time looking at a story in the Christian Bible where Jesus and some of his followers have this almost exact same situation happen around food, okay? The story that we're going to be reading, we're going to be reading the Matthew version of it, but you can also find it in the Mark version and in the Luke version. We'll check out the Mark version a little bit as well. But I hope that as we're on this journey together, as we're starting this series called Let's Eat, we will start to see how food can not only be a celebration, but it can also be a connection for us to understand God, to understand love, and to understand the divine better. So we'll start reading this in chapter 12, verse 1, and it says this. At that time, Jesus was walking through some fields of grain on a Sabbath day. His followers were hungry, so they began to pick the grain and eat it. Now, When I was growing up, one of the first lessons I ever learned about how to interpret the Bible is that if you ever see a phrase like, at that time, you should ask yourself, at what time? Uh, Actually, let me change that a little bit. I grew up in a very country, rural church up by the landfill here in Springfield. We mostly read the King James Version, and so it typically started sentences like this with, therefore. And so we were told, if you ever see the word therefore, you should ask, I wonder what it's there for. And it actually helps a little bit with this. Because you see, the person who wrote Matthew wasn't writing it chronologically. They weren't writing it like A, B, C. Instead, what they were doing is trying to craft a larger narrative. And the things like chapters and verses weren't things that would be added for hundreds of years later. So what I'd like to do is actually just, if we had a physical Bible, we'd like turn back the page. But I wanna look back at what was happening just before that so that we can start to understand this in maybe a little bit of a better light. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus is speaking here, and it says this. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Which is something, by the way, I think a lot of us could relate to. He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Just keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In other words, just as Jesus was saying to his followers that the crux of good religion was something that was outside of the orthodoxy, it wasn't about just following rules, but rather it was listening to this piece of grace and following after him. The next thing that it says that he does is that they're walking through a grain field and his disciples, his followers, start plucking some grain and eating it because they are hungry. (laughs) But the issue here isn't that they were plucking grain out of any random field. In fact, there wouldn't have even been a problem if it had been a stranger's field and they were eating grain out of it. Instead, what the problem was, was when they were doing it. You see, Jesus and his followers were largely Jewish And they would have been practicing what is known as the Sabbath or the Shabbat. The Pluralism Project from Harvard is an organization that helps people of different religions kind of relate to uh, and understand a little bit about different backgrounds and different histories of different religions. And here's what they say about this. And I think this will help us to kind of walk through what people might have been thinking. And this is obviously written in like modern examples of Sabbath. But it says, on Shabbat, Jews are commanded to rest and rejoice to refrain from mundane concerns and to avoid work. 
depending on one's interpretation or level of observance, refraining from mundane concerns or work can mean different things. For less observant Jews, Shabbat is simply a day of relaxation, a time to be with friends and family, sharing a meal together, and staying at home. For the more orthodox, Shabbat is a day spent in study and prayer in which any work, such as driving, using electricity, writing, or cooking, are completely forbidden. How literally the commandments of Shabbat are to be followed is extensively debated in the Talmud and remains the subject of lively debate and discussion. You see, where I think this is helpful is that Jesus is going here from a space of this high-level theological discussion to a very practical piece. It's like a couple of weeks ago, those of us who were at Theology Beer Camp, there were a lot of folks with PhDs who were talking, and you had to kind of sit up so it didn't go over your head. And sometimes we just have to find that place where it moves to a practical place like Jesus did here. He was saying, okay, now that we've had this conversation about following the rhythms of grace, what does it look like in our normal nine to five? Because that's kind of where there's some complication. It's as if Jesus is physically living out this Talmudic debate, right? About what it actually means to live this. It's, it's why I think there's so much to be gleaned and why Jesus so often asks us to follow him, not just to study about him or not just to learn about him, but rather we are constantly told, come follow after me instead of just learning the dogma of religion. And, you know, and I think it's in this space that we start to see people raise these objections, start to raise these questions. In verse 2, here's what it says. It says that when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, look, your followers are doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath day. So here's this group of followers of Jesus, and they're walking along and eating and plucking food and doing that. And the first thing that Matthew writes that they hear is these folks who say, you're not doing it right. It, it kind of reminded me uh, of a story that I read recently about what's going on in Canada right now. Their food inflation is actually higher than what we're experiencing here in the U.S. A lot of food is going up at higher prices. And one college professor, uh, Dollhouse University professor, Sylvia and Charlevoix, wrote this about the impact of grocery store theft. They said that grocery store theft has always been a major problem, but with food inflation as it is, shopkeepers now fear the wrongdoers more than before. So to cover their losses, grocers needed to raise prices. And honestly, anytime that food starts to become out of reach, people start wondering what to do about that. So a bunch of people did what people in the U.S. do. They took to Twitter about it. It says, Twitter users weren't happy with Charlevoix's words, with some proudly admitting that they shoplift, and others repeating, repeating the phrase, if you see someone shoplifting, just remember, no, you didn't. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I, I, I don't know. But it does bring up a point that a lot of times when food becomes the issue, when people are not getting what they need, they'll resort to all kinds of different options here. Food always brings out really, really deep emotions. And growing up, I was always told that that was kind of what was happening here with these Pharisees. I was always told that the Pharisees were the really, the, the overly religious bad people that were responsible for the death of Jesus. They were responsible. They were the reason that Jesus like uh, rebelled against the system. They were the problem. But the reality is that that may have been a little bit of a misconception that was sort of rooted in anti-Semitism. As I've been talking and listening to some of my Jewish friends, one of the things that they've told me 
is that realistically, Pharisaic Judaism was just a precursor to what we now see as rabbinic Judaism or like the Jewish folks that we see around us. And so they said, you know, it's actually hurtful for us when you say things like, don't be a Pharisee, because what we hear is, don't be so Jewish. Hmm, I didn't know, and now I know. It's one of those things that when you know better, you do better, I guess. So I started reading about this and trying to unpack this and trying to figure this out. Realistically, the folks that Matthew was describing here as Pharisees weren't really the whole group of Jewish folk. Dr. Douglas Hare, who's a professor of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, says it this way. The Mishnah, which is a collection of received opinions published in about 200 CE, does not list plucking, which is what the followers were doing. They were plucking the wheat. does not list plucking among the 39 varieties of prohibited labor. It is suggested that the views expressed by these Pharisees represents not ordinary Jewish opinion, but that of extreme Sabbatarians, for whom the Sabbath could not be violated even to save a life. And it made me wonder, how often is it that we group people together based on the most fringe elements amongst them? One year exactly from today, November 5th, 2024, will be the next presidential election. Ugh, <laughs> right? In 366 days, because yes, the sick, twisted person who created Leap Year decided to put it on an election year, decided that we're going to have 366 days of mudslinging, of name-calling, and of awkward family dinners <laughs> as we continue to be grouped around certain people. We know that no one is the caricature that gets painted, and yet for the next year, everyone will be painted either as red or blue, as Republican or Democrat. And it's not just politicians, right? We do this with different religious groups. We do this with different, uh, different school systems. We do this with different sports teams. I mean, if you go to any bar here this morning, you're likely to see a bunch of people in red cheering for Kansas City and the wrong people cheering for the Dolphins. <laughs> just kidding. But here's what I want you to hear. You do not need to let the fringe group with the loudest voices dictate who you are. Let me say that again, because this is really important that you hear this. You do not need to let the fringe group with the loudest voice dictate who you are. As a vegetarian, this used to happen to me all the time. 25 years ago, most people didn't know a vegetarian, yet were related to one. Their only concept of a vegetarian was PETA. And the only thing that they knew about that is that they threw fake blood on people wearing fur coats. And honestly, I was getting it on the other side as well, right? As a vegetarian and not a vegan, my vegan friends would tell me I wasn't going far enough because I was still eating eggs and cheese and honey. You know, and I felt sort of like the disciples here. Here I was, just trying to do my best to like understand the little corner of the world that I live in and trying to do it better. And suddenly everyone just couldn't handle it. Have you ever felt that way? Yeah. Maybe you're the overwhelmed teacher right now who wakes up every morning making sure that the kids are super safe 
that they learn what is in front of them, that you're meeting the state standards, that you listen to whatever the school board says so you don't get fired. And then you see things like teachers pay teachers or a Pinterest board, and you're like, I am not where I need to be. And you feel overwhelmed with it. Maybe you're a parent here today who's raising your first and only child right now. And you look at Instagram and the stories of these influencers with their eight kids who all line up perfectly and smile every single second of every single day. And you're like, I can't match up. And you're told and you, for some reason, believe that that's what you need to do. Let me say, you're doing a great job. Yeah, parents, teachers, you're doing a great job. And you need to hear that. You're doing it. You're making it happen. Maybe you're the 20-something or the 30-something or the 50-something or the 70-something who is chasing your dream. And all you hear from those who are closest to you are things like, why don't you settle down (laughs) or start a family or get a real job? I just want to affirm you right now to let you know that you are a beautiful people, that you're doing it, that you're doing the things And sometimes I think that we need to hear that because we can let the fringe group say a bunch of things if we're not careful with that. It's not to say that these other groups aren't necessarily trying their best. They are too, by the way. The fringe groups on the other side, they're trying their best. This is their only life as well, and they're trying their best with it. But I think that there is a difference here, that instead of listening to the fringe voices and letting those dictate our life, that maybe there's a different way. And I think that Jesus starts to explain this in verse 3. Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he and the people with him were hungry? The scripture says, I want kindness more than I want animal sacrifices. You don't really know what those words mean if you understood them. You would not judge those who have done nothing wrong. So the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath day. You see, when this fringe group of extreme Sabbatarians started arguing with Jesus, he immediately started bringing up examples that they would have understood. He talked about David, who they would have understood in their background. He also talked about the fact that priests work on the Sabbath day, and that was okay with them. And that's where he gets to what I think is like the second big thing that Jesus is telling people that we can learn from this, which is this. When you can be anything, be kind. (laughs) When you can be anything, Be kind. Jesus says, I don't look for sacrifice. I look for mercy. Here at the venues, one of the things that we really value is curiosity. We think it's important to be curious and skeptical. In fact, one of the ways that we say this for our students and for our children is that we phrase the value by saying questions are good. We want you to ask questions. But there's a difference between asking questions that are designed to promote curiosity and those that are designed to promote criticism and division. There's a difference between questions that are designed to promote curiosity and those that are designed to promote criticism and division. We've all known the people in our lives, or we see them on television, who criticize people and then just back it up by saying, "Uh -uh, I'm I'm just asking questions. But what Jesus says here is that when we interpret scripture, or when we interpret the rules by which we live our lives, that we should do this through the lens of, does this make me more loving? Does this make me more kind? If it does, then I think it's the religion. It's the, the way that we engage in life. It's the rule that is honoring to God. And if not, maybe there are other issues at play. 
When I first became a vegetarian, the most important book I read was The Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol J. Adams. As a side note, if you had the pastor will say the phrase sexual politics of meat on your venue's bingo card, congratulations, you win bingo forever. <laughs> but the book started with an interesting premise. Carol Adams was looking at the fact that most of the vegetarians that she knew were feminist, and most of the feminists that she knew was, were vegetarian. And she was like, why? And so she started looking at the way that we talk about both of them. She said, there's this notion called the absent referent, which is the reason, by the way, that when you drive through McDonald's or Burger King, you order McNuggets or a Whopper instead of naming the animal that it was. You don't order a chicken or a seared dead cow flesh. Yum. <laughs> and she said that, that there's something similar that happens with the way that we otherize people, right? How often have you heard someone say, look at that nice piece of to completely otherize and separate ourselves in a form of violence against someone else, in a form of oppression. We create the other. For me, 25 years ago, this was an argument I didn't have an answer to. It's an argument I still don't have a really good answer to. And I'm, again, remember, I'm not suggesting or even insinuating that you should become a vegetarian over this. That's not my goal at all. I don't care. You do whatever you want. But for me, what it was is making sure that the foods that I ate, the most mundane things that I did, that I thought through with them, and I thought through how can I not otherize the people who serve me my food? How can I not otherize the people who give me my groceries when I check out? How can I not otherize the creatures that God created that exist on this planet with me? And for me, it was life-changing. It said that when you make choices about food, you make choices that honor the animal. I do think, by the way, moving from food to how we engage with each other, that's kind of how Jesus finished the story in the Mark version of it, by the way. When Jesus was telling the story in the Mark version, the last verse of it said it this way. Then Jesus said to the Pharisee, the Sabbath day was not made to help, or was made to help people. They were not made to be ruled by the Sabbath day. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. In other words, these rules about food and what you pluck, or when you can pluck it or prepare it, they're fine. But ultimately, those rules were designed to make it such that your life honored those around you better. And when those rules didn't do that anymore, when you started otherizing them, when religion becomes a weapon, it's not used correctly. When religion is a weapon, it's not used correctly. The goal is to see those have been excluded by the friends who yell and to figure out ways to bring them in. I'll finish up by sharing this. About six years ago, my wife Morgan and I had the opportunity to go to Unalakleet, Alaska a couple of times. There was a church camp up there that was completely off-grid. There was no electricity or no water except for in the actual kitchen. <laughs> and one of the days that I was there, one of the locals asked me, if I would like to go fishing with him. Now, it was in the middle of the summer, so it was light 24 hours a day, and he asked me if I'd go at like two o'clock in the morning. And as a side note, if a local from Alaska ever asks you to go fishing, the answer is absolutely, <laughs> I'd love to do that. So we got in his small boat, and we started going down this little stream, and we got to this spit after about two miles, or it seemed like, of the river. 
This pit was maybe about a third the size of the stage. And as we got out of the boat, about five feet from me, there were some fresh bear tracks. And he said, by the way, if a bear comes by, just give him the fish. I said, no problem. We're good. And then he got out a fishing rod and reel with a hook that had no bait on it. And he said, we're just going to fish right here. And I was confused because I went fishing a lot when I was a little kid, and I always knew, you know, put the worm on or whatever. He said, don't worry about it. We're fine. <laughs> and for 15 minutes, I stood there with one rod and cast in this little spot, and I would throw my uh, line in, reel it in. And in 15 minutes, we caught 12 fish. It was wild. I'd never seen anything like it. As soon as we'd reel them in, he'd take it off the hook, go ahead and make sure it died mercifully, and then we'd move on to the next one. And that experience to me was incredibly sacred and holy. Because in Unalakleet, Alaska, if you don't go trout fishing at that time like we did, the trout will eat the salmon babies. And the salmon run is necessary for that community, both culturally and so that they have an economy so they can sell the salmon down to the lower 48 and they can sustain their life. That night, I ate one of those fish. I thanked it for its life. I partake of it. And, and it was really interesting to me to kind of process through that. Because for my 20 years before that, being a vegetarian meant that I had rules that I couldn't violate. And then suddenly, the other came in and said, what I desire is kindness in this instance. 25 years later, I'm still a vegetarian. I still check the ingredient list that I'm eating something new. I still call ahead to make sure that there are vegetarian options if I'm going out to eat. But there's a different way to approach it now for me. Likewise, I still call myself a Christian. I still think the Bible is really useful. I still read it, and I think there are things that I can learn from it. But I think the big piece here is that when it comes to interpreting Scripture, when it comes to living through these rules, the question should be, how does this help me love other people better? If it does so, spectacular. And if not, maybe there's a way that we need to ask these questions better. My hope for you is the same. My hope for you is that in your daily choices, what you do today wherever it is, that you do so from a place that respects and loves each other, that you look for ways to be more kind, and that you don't let the fringe groups define you. If you have questions, they're spectacular, but make sure that they're raised so that you grow in curiosity, not just criticism.